When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi series discussing Michelangelo Mato's book, The Underground is Massive How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan take the tale to Detroit to discuss Mato's take on the early techno scene in that city. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll? That means I'm back. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, back with Ryan Harkness to continue our third installment of the Techno Roll series. Now we're focusing on a book by Michelangelo Matos, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. And today we're going to be talking about a chapter called The Music Institute, November 24th, 1989. Ryan, welcome. We're back I'm in excited Detroit. to I'm excited to do this. I mean, the chapter is named after the Music Institute, but it does spend a lot of its time in the UK uh, kind of tracking what these Chicago House and Detroit techno records are doing, you know, and that's a bit disappointing at first. I don't feel like I need another account of, you know, Paul Oakenfold and the gang dropping E in Ibiza. But, uh, you know, Matos does a really good job of 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 putting the Belleville three from from Detroit into the events of the UK and showing how everything bounces back and forth between America and the UK. And uh, it, it gives the Music Institute its due, which is something that uh, the other books that we've covered didn't really do. I feel like the Music Institute just is is a bit of a footnote. You know, it existed, it happened, but it wasn't that big of a deal compared to like the Power Plant or the Music Box. Yeah, and I think I think he does do a great job of putting it into a narrative, centering that narrative on the Belleville Three, uh, which is uh, you know Juan Atkins, Derek May, and Kevin Saunderson, uh, all three techno producers out of Detroit. But he also I think really brings home the extent to which the British Acid House explosion, which is where electronic dance music really comes into its own as a dominant music form in uh, European culture, how much of that was driven? They were playing records from Chicago and Detroit. That was what was really driving the bus, was this music coming out of the American Midwest. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, everything going out on in the UK, especially when they were calling it Balearic, was just kind of an all styles thing where, where you know, Chicago house and, and Detroit techno is happening. And, and we'll get into this a bit later on in the chapter when we're breaking down the tracks. But a lot of the time, you know, um, there wasn't that big of a difference between all the genre names. There's a lot of Chicago house that has techno elements. A lot of uh, Detroit techno has Chicago house elements, and a lot of uh, both that 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 nowadays you wouldn't even classify as techno or house. So it's kind of funny, all the all these origin tracks and stuff like that. You listen to it and go, it's not even you know this is considered uh, one of one of the one of the original uh, creators of of techno music, but it's not really techno. Yeah, I mean, to me, Kevin Saunderson stuff in particular is deep house. I mean, it's got the diva singing, it's got songs instead of tracks, et cetera, et cetera. But let's talk about uh, the chapter. Matos kind of starts it out by taking us back to Chicago and telling us how Chicago music broke big in England, or not so much how it did, but that it did. You you get records like Jack Your Body uh, by uh, J.M. Silk, which is a partnership between Steve Silk Hurley one of the Hot Mix Five, and Keith Nunley on vocals. That goes number one in Britain. And once again, they're swiping the bass line from first choices, Let No Man Put Asunder. That is a well-used bass line. Yeah, uh, they reuse those bass lines, man. You get a hit bass line and you reuse it like like a, a dozen times if you can get away with it. Yeah, and this is something we saw uh, in the reggae chapter way back when in the first series, that that was a a, a habit that reggae and dub producers had. If they if they got a good groove, they were going to put multiple songs on top of it, and I'm not going to argue with success. And one of the key factors in house music breaking so big in England was this compilation called The House Sound of Chicago that's put together by a London Records A&R man who's also a DJ, Pete Tong, who comes up again and again in our tale. I think Reynolds mentioned him a few times. Got a little bit of love from Bruce and Broughton, not, not a big feature, but I think that's kind of undersung. I think Pete Tong's role in putting that compilation together um, maybe is as important as what Danny Rampling and Paul Oakenfold uh, and the gang did by going to Ibiza and stealing DJ Alfredo's act. Yeah, I feel like this is one of those details that Michelangelo Matos like dug up that that was kind of overlooked by the other books. And it's very fascinating. I always love kind of when 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 you're an ignorant 18 year old and you're seeing guys like Pete Tong and Paul Oakenfold doing their thing and you kind of wonder why they are where they are uh, above everybody else and you don't really understand it. And then you go into the histories and you find out, OK, Pete Tong was behind that initial house chicago compilation that basically broke the genre in the uk and paul oakenfold is basically kind of being uh, on the sidelines of every uh, mutation of dance music in the uk for the last 25 years then it starts to make a lot more sense absolutely and that compilation and the fact that some of the tracks on it uh hit the charts and hit the charts hard that causes a little bit of a media feeding frenzy and, and multiple British reporters fly out to Chicago and start tracking down these teenagers who are making these records in their bedrooms. I mean, somebody like Marshall Jefferson, who, as he says, I hadn't even done my big shit yet, you know, uh, and, and they've got reporters from across the Atlantic coming to talk to them. So that is an immediate and distorting factor on the scene. I, I think Matos does a pretty good job of also breaking, explaining how the gravitational pull of the money and the audiences in England and Europe 
kind of pull these creators away from Chicago and Detroit. Yeah, and he also kind of mentions the fact that dance music germinated in the UK uh, around the north. Um, yeah, and it was, it was the north- northern soul, though, as a name. But Well, again, I feel like this is one of those things where he tries really hard not to get sucked into uh, anything that happened before like 1985. So he's not going to talk about disco. He's not going to talk about Northern Soul. If you want Northern Soul, I think uh, last night a DJ saved my life has the Northern Soul stuff, and we did a good chapter on Northern Soul too because guys Indeed. like Ian Levine, who who stuck around and was the, one of the guys that that was the bridge from Northern Soul to to Chicago house and Detroit techno in the UK, he he's a he's a main player in both of those. Yeah, and Matos does explain that the audiences in the north of England were primed to import American, African-American records. And, and that's really all you need to know. And, and he tells the tale. But let's go ahead and hear our first song. And this is um, Jack Your Body by J.M. Silk, a.k.a. Steve Silk Hurley. was Jack Your Body from 1986, a Chicago house classic by Steve Silk Hurley. Do I need to ask you why you picked this one? I mean, I can tell you. Yeah, I'm trying to give you guys, um, uh, take, you, take you to 1987 into the UK and, and play a track that, that puts you into the headspace of what the people up in the north of England of, are, are, are dancing to and getting groovy to. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I don't know, It's it's been interesting over the course of the series for me getting a handle on this music that I didn't just sleep on, but actively ignored and dissed at the time. And and now I know vintage Chicago house when I hear it. And, and Jack, your body is absolutely um, the definition of that. And it's also interesting. And, and he doesn't go into a lot of this, but he mentions the uptight club scene in London, that this is a period of time where even somebody like the rapper KRS one from Boogie Down Productions He's playing at one of the big London dance clubs, and the night before, they won't let him in. That's how uptight, uh, and frankly, elements of racism were probably present. But now it's time to go to Ibiza and explain what happened. We're going to go through this story once again. One more time. Third kick at the can. (laughs) What happened in Ibiza? Who went there? What did they learn? And what did they bring back to England? You want me to run through it or you want to go through it? Oh, you, I mean, I was throwing it to you, but you know, if you're going to lob it back, I'll tell you. It was Nikki Holloway, Paul Oakenfold, Danny Rampling, and Johnny Walker, all uh, UK DJs, all of them involved in the rare groove uh, and deep funk scenes, jazz funk scenes in England at the time. They go to Ibiza and go to the other side of the island. They'd all been on partying on one side of the island and hearing the kind of stuff they were used to hearing in England, they go to the other side of the island, they go to the Amnesia Club, the open-air nighttime party hosted by DJ Alfredo. They take MDMA, a.k.a. X, a.k.a. E, a.k.a. Ecstasy, and have a life-changing experience. And all of them come back and open up different clubs 
in England, Rampling Open Shoom, which is a really small club in a basement. I think of an aerobic studio, 500 people capacity. That's I think that's even higher too than what it actually was. Uh, one one trend I'm finding with this book is that the capacity numbers. Maybe it's a, a, a rave capacity of 500, like you could put 500 people in there against fire laws. But Music Institute, I think as well, they said was 500. All the other stuff I've said is like, oh, it's you know 250, and then you can stuff it. You can put people in there like sardines in a can, and God knows that's rave. Yep, that's 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 what it is. And and Shroom was unique, as we talked about in the uh, first series, because it could create that vibe with a small number of people. Had fog machines and 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 smoke and lights and music created a real vibe that was instantly contagious. And that's in December '87 that Shroom opens up. April nine, April '88. Danny Ramplin opens up the Spectrum, which is at Heaven, which is the massive um, gay disco at Charing Cross, capacity 1,500 per Matos. Um, and then by June 88, Holloway's open up the trip at Astoria on Tottenham Court Road. And they start bringing over uh, Chicago and Detroit DJs. And I love the part about DJ Future and Marshall Jefferson talking about the dancing style of the early UK ravers. You want to describe this? Yeah, I mean, basically, they just said, like, you know, the kids in the UK can't dance, but at least they're having fun. And I, I can feel that. And, uh, you know, there, there's a number of references to this and talking about, say, blacker dance floors where where there's a real unity and dance style and everybody is dancing with each other, but not in like, you know, a traditional way where it's one person and one person, but it's just a whole floor moving together. And I'm, you know, I got to say, I'm kind of jealous because I've never experienced that because I'm definitely the all elbows guy that they're describing at the goth bar at the end of this chapter that's me i'm sorry absolutely me too it's it's you know it can't be helped i believe there's long uh cultural reasons that you can blame the catholic church for squelching dancing for you know 500 years or something in europe but uh that's a side issue but now let's talk about what's going on on the business side in chicago and this is something i think matos really tells this tale better than anybody else and, and we're talking about larry sherman of tracks records and and as we talked about last time larry sherman owned the only record pressing plant in chicago like if you wanted to make your own record you had to go through him he would keep a very close eye on what who was printing up a lot of records which implied that they were selling those records starts a couple of labels including tracks records and i, I really have to admire as a journalist matos's skill he never really says anything about Larry Sherman's business practices, but he quotes a lot of people who imply a whole lot about Larry Sherman uh, business practices. Like there's this quote on page 26 that I've got to flip to and share because um, it really sums up Mr. Sherman. Um, let's see. Even though their records were blowing up overseas, most of the Chicago producers were still living hand to mouth. Uh, Larry Sherman calculated royalties on a sliding scale, and here's the quote. If I give an artist $3,000 to do a tune, and it costs him, say, $1,500 to use a studio, that leaves him $1,500 to live on until he can produce another tune, because the reality is we have to sell at least 15,000 records to pay back the advance, and all his records will do is 10 to 15,000 units. Then he has a whole riff about, and if they get on a compilation that in the UK, that might sell 15,000 units. But even then, because it's one of the 15 tracks on the records, the revenue will be so low that the advance is not recouped. I mean, essentially, he's just describing how he's not paying anybody. 
And he's proud of it. I mean, uh, this is one of those things where he's talking to another business uh, magazine and he's saying, this is great. These kids, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how many units they're selling. And we're keeping them just hungry. and uh, we're, we're paying them just enough to have them keep coming back every other month to write a new hit. Yeah. And then he disses the creators. I mean, a, a quote, this is another quote. People like Farley and Marshall and Hurley can't really play a note. They don't have the tools to be successful commercially. And as Matos points out, this is after Hurley's already gone number one in England. Farley, uh, and then we're talking about Jack Muster Funk um, here, went top 10. And just before Marshall Jefferson goes top 10 in the UK. So flat out wrong. I mean, these guys did produce hit records. Um, you know, but, and then, and then this is my favorite quote from Larry Sherman. He says, I try and help these kids out. And hell, they make me a lot of money. So seriously, I have no bitch with them and I wish them all the luck in the world. <laughs> yeah, all the luck in the world working with him, a guy yeah. who's, you know, taking most of the money and not telling them allegedly, about it. Allegedly. Yeah, you're right. You're right. This is the whole thing. Maybe this is why no one really talks too much trash about Larry Sherman is that uh, is that if you want to get into specifics, you know, where's the proof? But uh, yeah. there's and, and it's interesting because there's a real love hate relationship with a lot of these Chicago and Detroit people. Um, when it comes to Larry Sherman, when he died, a, a whole bunch of the uh, the original uh, Chicago guys, you know, like mourned his passing on on, on social media and stuff like that. And uh, you know, the same people you'll you'll read in books or magazines saying talking about how Larry Sherman screwed them over in one way or another. About, but uh, you know, it didn't it didn't stop them from giving giving him some props because I guess when you look at it, he was he was he was the person you had to go to to get the fame that you did. And the guys that are no longer around because Larry Sherman cut them off at the knees, uh, you know, they're, they're the people, the people, them. yeah, the people that are still around talking about it managed to manage to succeed in spite of Larry Sherman. So they, they can be a little bit more benevolent towards his behavior <laughs> and his legacy. And there's one last quote. This is from Vince Lawrence, who was one of those Chicago kids who went to work for the devil uh, at Tracks Records and became an A&R man there. And this quote. As I've been chewing on this quote for months now, and it says, the part I never understood where was, was where the money was going on those deals. I never got paid. And then the next thing he says, I was making good money, but the economics were oblivious to me. What the hell? I never got paid. I was making good money. I assume he means I never got a big windfall or I never had a big score but I was getting regular checks. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think I think it's one of those things. That, and this happened to me in my early 20s is that I worked for somebody and, you know, you get you get a regular paycheck every two weeks, but you're bringing in, you know, you're cutting deals that are making tens of thousands of dollars and you never see any of that. And there's never enough money for a raise. So it might be one of those situations. Sounds right. And let's hear our next song. And this is a Kevin Saunderson special. This is from his act called Inner City. This is Big Fun from Big Fun by Inner City from 1989. That was the big hit 
off another compilation record that was originally going to be uh, called, what was it they were going to call it, the the House Sound of Detroit, and they changed it to Techno! Exclamation point, the new dance sound of Detroit. Why'd you pick that track? Ah, I mean, uh, it, it's, a, it's a pretty important one. Uh, Big Fun is the kickoff for Inner City, which was definitely the most successful of the Belleville 3's uh, projects. And uh, it, it just goes to show you that even though we're, we're, we're doing all the underground initial house and techno sounds, there's, there's always room for somebody to put some pop music in there and really make some, make some, make some waves in the music industry. Cause that went to number eight in the UK. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, uh, Kevin Saunderson is just being head and shoulders above the rest as far as, uh, like, uh, musical success or, or at least sales success. Yeah. The, the chart maker, but let's introduce another character, this guy, Neil Rushton. Um, and he's a Birmingham, UK soul fan. He owns a small label, Cool Cat Records with a K. Um, and he's jealous because the other other labels have, you know, Pete Tong and others have gobbled up all the Chicago house artists and records. So he finds Detroit and which isn't very hard because they're playing in the same Chicago clubs. And I assume their records are in some of the same distribution networks as the Chicago house records as well. I don't, they never talk about the Detroit guys working with Larry Sherman. So I assume they avoided that trap, but somehow the records get over to England because of Neil Rushton, who puts together this compilation, cuts a deal with Virgin Records, their subsidiary Tin Records puts out this compilation, which ironically isn't itself a particularly big seller. Although and it's and not it's, not particularly good. It's got a couple of like individual tracks that are good, but maybe they should have gotten Pete Tong to do the the, the, the track picking again. <laughs> you need the right selector. But Neil Rushton does become Derek May's manager. And this is fascinating. May goes over to England to work on some remixes, ends up staying with Rushton. Uh, Rushton becomes his manager. They scheme up uh, this uh, compilation, which this is the first time techno is branded as a distinct genre from house. And this is literally the fork in the road. Because like you say, a lot of the Chicago, I mean, some, a lot of the Detroit records sound very house, like Kevin Saunderson stuff, I think in particular, but I think a lot of the Chicago stuff sounds pretty techno. I think, I think DJ Pierre's, uh, and future stuff to me sounds techno. If, if, and if you heard them all mixed in the same club, I don't think you would have pulled them apart. And yeah, there wasn't, strong. there wasn't a, there wasn't a lock-in the way that there is now. Now I think house is sexier and more soulful, and it usually has a bit more of a leaning towards maybe some more real instruments, while techno is definitely more robotic and stuff like that. But the lines hadn't been drawn at that point, and it was, it was more of a, of a regional thing, and it was more of an auteur thing, like where Juan Atkins insisted that what he was making was techno, and we got to call it techno, and Derek May just kind of going along with that and 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 riffing on the idea of what techno was when he defined it as George Clinton and, and Kraftwerk stuck in an elevator with a sequencer. Yeah, that's classic. And that's part of this cult of the Belleville three being established in Britain because you know the, the British media has been covering Chicago house. They, uh, this compilation comes out and also cool cat puts out multiple, uh, uh singles. Also, he puts out R Derek May's rhythm is rhythm, uh, projects, Nude Photo. He puts out The Sound by Reese, which is a Kevin Saunderson project He put uh, with San Antonio. San Antonio Eccles is Re Saunderson's partner in Reese. Um, and it becomes a thing. And there's a ton of media coverage. There's features in the face and New Musical Express. And it's big enough that the Belleville Three can combine their 
resources and rent a whole building in Detroit. And obviously, real estate in in post uh, industrial Detroit is fairly cheap, but still, three young guys have their own building and have this pretty hilarious rivalry. Mados tells some great stories, like the time one of them's carrying a typewriter in and everybody else starts busting his chops. Hey, look, Transmont's got a typewriter. And, you know, this is the late 80s, so a typewriter is still relevant technology, but it's being superseded by portable word processors and about to be uh, replaced entirely by the personal computer, but, you know, still has that. But I thought it was interesting that they've got this intense rivalry and they're always talking about music together and their goal is to impress each other, but it's not about making hits. It's about making new and original music. And Derek May's strings of life, which was named by uh, the Chicago house DJ Frankie Knuckles is quote hotter than the rest and kind of becomes one of the big anthems of uh, the second summer of love in Britain. Um, and we'll get to strings of life a little bit more. But then it also talks about Kevin Saunderson going to England and seeing Big Fun before it's released as a single decimate the crowd when Paul Oakenfold drops it in his set. Um, you know, and this is part of this rave explosion that starts in a tiny club with Shum, gets to a bigger club at Heaven, and then pretty soon this character Tony Colston Hater comes in. And anytime you get Brits with hyphenated names, you know you're dealing with the caste system that, that somebody highfalutin has lowered himself, has deigned to conquer here, stooped to conquer, um, and starts launching these big events. First, uh, Apocalypse Wow in Shepherd's Bush that draws 5,000 people. Then, pretty by fall of 88, he's doing the sunrise mystery trips and doing what we think of as the classic raves. Meanwhile, you get British artists like uh, the 808 State, the KLF, and a guy called Gerald are all dropping songs that um, are tracks that are making as big an impact as the stuff coming out of Chicago and Detroit. What did you think of the way Matos deals with that, this sort of cross-Atlantic rivalry? And, and Well, you kind of get the feeling like the book is supposed to be focused on America. So he really he – really, gets in and gets out quick. It's like you, you get that quick little glimpse of how Acid House came from uh, or or Balearic Sound developed into Acid House out of uh, Ibiza. And then now he's taking us back in. He's doing the Summer of Love and all of the the gigantic orbital raves on 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 the M on the highway around uh, London and stuff like that. So he's just getting in, getting out quick. And he's again, he's using the Belleville Three, coming in and seeing their music getting played uh, to kind of show that that interplay between you know the music's coming from here it's getting over here now you've got uk guys making their own stuff and no longer relying on uh on all the american stuff which is uh which was a, a bit of an evolution because in the past a lot of the other scenes like northern soul and stuff they never they never managed to get their own music going and maybe that's because uh northern soul required you know black singers or or or, or, or something like that and this here is more of a diy you can do it without without that and no one knows that you're not black or something I, i'm not sure exactly what the deal was with all of a sudden the uk being willing to to put their foot down and, and make their own music in the scene but they did and it's right up there competing with what was coming out of uh, the states yeah I, I, my vote would be that it was the, the democratization of the technology that the the sequencers and the drum machines got so cheap that it wasn't just black teenagers in Chicago who could afford it. It was also, uh, you know, Brits in their teens and early twenties, 
who could afford this stuff and figured out, hey, this is not impossible. We can do this too. Kind of a punk rock moment. And one last quote before we take our sponsor break. And Matos has a great quote from Juan Atkins talking about the culture shock he felt when he um, went over to England and saw, you know, uh, DJ Jazzy M just blowing the crowd away with remixes he was doing live on the turntables of, of Derek May's Strings of Life. And Atkins called it culture shock. It was a culture shock to me to see the integrated dance floors. He says the English are more used to that cultural mix-up. It's a smaller country. Everybody's on top of each other. They're not as segregated. They just don't think nothing of it. And I think this chapter, it's essential to go to England because that's the engine. The audiences there are the money engine that are driving the train um, from Chicago and Detroit. You know, Chicago is a big city, and and because of the radio exposure and because of the big dance clubs, like we talked about last time, there was enough to build a really strong regional scene. But because of hip hop coming up, it couldn't it couldn't go national. Hip hop beat out house to be the new African American national music uh, in the '80s. So let's take our sponsor break, and when we come back. We'll go back to Detroit and talk about the Music Institute itself. So we've been talking about the Belleville Three and and various associates like Eddie Folks and others who suddenly their records are not just selling a few thousand copies because they're you know getting exposure in Chicago. Now they're being exported to England and selling uh, a a lot more. Although honestly, the English market isn't that much bigger than the Chicago market, but it it's got a whole media infrastructure that um, the Chicago market just doesn't have. Chicago's it's the second city. It's it's you know, and really the third or fourth city. Honestly, these days it doesn't have that New York or LA media beast, but London does have that, and so it's getting all this attention. But they come back to Detroit, and these guys, George Baker, Alton Miller, and Shea Damier, um, are, decide they want to have a club, and they they find a place at 1315 Broadway. It's a black box, capacity 500 people. They they remodel it and launch the Music Institute. With I love this. The DJ booth is 15 feet above the floor, and you could just see Derek May from his forehead down. Initially, it's done as sort of a private club in imitation of the way clubs in Chicago and New York run, although there's no actual city permitting. or It's just sort of pretending to have a club. They're putting out membership cards. Yeah, they're following like a blueprint from the other cities where, where membership was more of a legal uh, requirement in order to get around a lot of the licensing re uh, requirements. Now, that wasn't a deal in Detroit, but it still allowed you to have a uh, exclusive vibe. And memberships, you know, like, I mean, uh, you see this all the time with like uh, retail box stores that you, they get you in on a membership and all of a sudden you're just a little bit, a little bit more likely to go back to them and use your membership card, you know? Yep, absolutely. And and it's initially open on Saturdays after hours. It soon expanded to a second night on Fridays. Um, Kevin Saunderson's a DJ early on, but as his, as Inner City takes off in England, he's not there very much. So Derek May becomes a primary DJ with some understudies, although he's also going around uh, to England. So one Atkins will, will sub in when he's not. And it's interesting to hear about the music that Derek May is playing. Uh, you know, he's playing a lot of Chicago House. He's playing Little Louis Blackout and French Kiss. And then he's playing very true to Derek May. He's playing weird stuff like Manuel Gotching's E2, E4, which is this, it's not even synth pop. It's synth, it's sort of experimental synth. And when you listen to it, you can hear a lot of the roots of techno 
but it's missing that George Clinton aspect. And that's what I think these Belleville three really bring. And that's one of the things that's kind of lost by their English imitators is these guys bring the funk, this first era Detroit techno and early Chicago house. It's funky and danceable in a way that say the dreaded intelligent techno and other airs are not. Yeah. There's a, there's an element of Chicago house that takes too much from New York and it's disco past. And then what you have in Detroit is you have a city that was brought brought up by the electrifying mojo and all of his new wave and, and weird European electro stuff. And so there there's 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 less there's less of an idea of what you're supposed to do. So there's there's more of an experimentation outside of of the realm of what maybe was going on in Chicago, where where coming from New York, they already had an idea of the kind of music that uh, that 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 should be played at the warehouse or the music uh, box or at the uh, at the power plant or whatever else like that. So these guys were 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 expanding outside of that, and it made it a little bit more eclectic, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think it is interesting that Matos is so focused on on Chicago and Detroit. He really does undersell Detroit. I mean, I mean, not Detroit, New York, like every other book. Brewster and Broughton gave a whole chapter to the Paradise Garage and Larry Levon and, and Simon Reynolds definitely focuses, you know, his opening chapter is three cities, Chicago, Detroit and New York. And when you leave out New York, not only are you leaving out this sort of nascent garage style, which becomes garage in England, um, which I agree, we talked about this last time, that's kind of a retro named style. Like when LeVan was playing, he was just playing dance music. He was playing disco, post-disco, new wave, um, no wave, all this kind of stuff, electro, all these different things that were dance music in the 80s. And it's only um, what's the guy that goes to New Jersey that be, kind of codifies the Garrett sound? Uh, is it Humphreys? Yeah, Tony Humphreys, and um, and and you know that, that it becomes a, a sound, and then you know becomes a whole genre in England in the '90s. But I see, I see it. I can understand that 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 you know it wasn't necessarily a, a style. Uh, but he's also leaving out like the whole electro scene, the whole Africa Bambata. There's a period he does mention that Juan Atkins in the previous chapter, Juan Atkins was pissed when he went to New York with the first Cybertron records and feels like Bambada has beat him to the punch with with Planet Rock. And that spawns, you know, Mantronics and this whole there's a whole period where hip hop and techno and house, you can see how closely related they are. Before Run DMC comes along with the boom bap, this electro era is you know other than the rapping on top of it is very you know you can have a set that with house music techno and and electro and and it all makes sense and fits together yeah and it, you almost feel like a couple extra hits one way or another would have changed the direction of everything but yeah. instead uh hip-hop kind of went off off of the drum machine or at least off of the overt electronic uh sounds in a different direction and and now here we are yeah, it's like Rick Rubin kind of hijacked uh, hip hop and turned it into kind of a rock sound that you listen to, to in your car or, uh, you know, you focused on the lyrics and listen to the album rather than uh, straight up dance music. 
anyway, I just thought that was interesting because, you know, then there's the whole Jelly Bean Benitas and Madonna side of it that's also big dance music. But gets I guess I guess my whole issue, well, the, the, the reasoning behind it, again, is, is, you know, this book came out in 2015. He knows these other books are there. Uh, on my shelf, I've got three books specifically about the New York scene, in addition to the two that we reviewed over over the course of the last two seasons. So, you know, you can either focus on the stuff that's already been done before, or you can give it a little bit more shrift to places like the Music Institute, which to me, uh, I love the fact that it got a lot more mention this time. What I always took away from the other books is that it just lasted for two years and never really got going. Yeah. Uh, but Matos goes into the peak and you really need to look at the peak to understand the impact of places like this, even if it only lasts for a year or a year and a half, uh, there's big impacts that go on. And you hear about how the place was packed for the first year and how Derek May solidified his position as a top DJ and how a ton of second generation producers and DJs from all over the Midwest were just making pilgrimages to the Music Institute from Chicago, from New York as well. It was like another neuron in the network that was slowly being created in America and uh, and again, it, it's something that just kind of uh, in comparison to the other to the other spots, it's never gotten more than two paragraphs. And this time it really got its due. Yeah, and, and I agree. And I think that second generation is the key. And, you know, Reynolds had to spend multiple chapters on Detroit. You know, there's the first wave of Detroit producers and then there's the second wave of Detroit producers. And all these guys are showing up in this chapter because they got into it at the Music Institute. You're talking about Carl Craig, who saw Derek May play Inner City's Big Fun for the first time. It was played for an audience there and had a religious conversion experience. And obviously, he becomes one of the big second-generation techno producers. You also, you didn't mention Windsor, Ontario, but kids are crossing the bridge and crossing the border. And so Richie Houghton, a.k.a. Plastic Man, and all his many other aliases, he had been DJing at Shelter, which was the all elbows goth club uh, for the white kids and new waivers to dance. Although I think Derek may had DJ there as well. Um, yeah, there were, there was a lot of uh, crossover with the, with the shelter. And I think the shelter before they opened up the music Institute was kind of this was kind of the spot on, on off nights. The techno guys would kind of get to do things here and there. Yeah. And so Richie Houghton, of course, is going to become a big force. Um, and then you get this trio that we're going to be talking about quite a bit in upcoming chapters. And, you know, Simon Reynolds and others talked about, and you're talking about Robin Hood, Jeff Mills, and Mad Mike Banks, uh, or Rob Noyes, as uh, calls himself, uh, who become the underground resistance. So most of the major characters of the second wave of Detroit are here at the Music Institute, seeing how Derek May lays it down and learning these lessons and seeing also how, uh, you know, May and Saunderson and Atkins are going off to UK and Europe um, to play. And th th there's this career opportunity here. Um, but let's go ahead and hear one of the key songs from this period. And this is uh, Rhythm is Rhythm, Strings of Life. Thank you. 
All right, and that was Derek May's Strings of Life under his Rhythm is Rhythm brand and, and spelled wrong. Rhythm is Rhythm um, uh, for a little pun there. So do you even need to tell us why you picked Strings of Life? Uh, you know, it's just another one straight out of the pages of the book. Sometimes I try to go a bit deep and try to pull out something a little bit odd. But this time, you know, as we said, this is the third time we're taking a kick of the can. And I realized I went back and I checked out what the musical picks were for the other ones. And I'm just like, man, we're missing some foundational music here. So let's just go for the obvious stuff. Yeah. And uh, Rhythm is Rhythm is one of those tracks that I imagine must have just you must have just heard a lot of if you were around Detroit at the time. Yeah, or in England. I mean, I, you know, we we just mentioned that that was, you know, one of the tracks that was killing people during the second Summer of Love. And I just, it's a brilliant track. It's absolutely definitive techno. And yeah, I think it's just a key uh, bit of, of American musical history there. So I'm glad you finally picked it, Ryan. I'm glad, I'm glad you, you stooped to go obvious. And it's not just the Detroit guys that are coming here. Uh, you also get the Chicago guys who are coming up. Um, like uh, DJ Pierre said, you know, when I heard that that Atkins May and Saunderson were all laying it down at this club, I had to go check it out. Uh, you get Brits, uh, like a guy called Gerald is coming out. You get people from Holland that are coming out. So, and there's a funny uh, story in there about Derek May. Just uh, you know, they'll they'll be they'll be out in their techno warehouse just hanging out, and these random people from Europe will show up at the door and just say, "How do you do?" And Derek May will take him out and show him around the town. And uh, take them to lunch and just talk all talk their ear off the entire time and send them home with some good stories. <laughs> and and that that just plays into the idea of Derek May being the most charismatic and and the most uh, you know people friendly uh, of the group and how he was always kind of able to 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 play that role for for not just the Belleville Three, but for the entire Detroit techno uh, you know as a representative. Yeah, and and you left out that he would make tea, and I love I love that image of you know these Brits or these Dutchmen showing up at, at a warehouse in Detroit, and those black kids making him tea, uh, making him feel at home. So yeah, it's just classic. And Derek May, uh, this I think it does a good job of explaining why Derek May looms so large in these stories because he's a guy who stopped making records really kind of early, and you know focused on his DJing and and. You know, so when I first started, you know, learning about this stuff, I was kind of like, why is everybody talking about Derek May all the time? I mean, it was pretty obvious that Strings of Life was great and a big track, but this really fills in the gaps of he was um, the communicator, the the visionary who could articulate what is this techno. I mean, Juan Atkins might have been the guy who was the original visionary who formulated these ideas, but Derek May was the guy who could articulate them. And yeah, it feels like Juan Atkins, uh, like, I mean, he had manifestos about techno, but we're not reading those these days, are we? We're just we're just hearing Derek May's quote about what it means to him. So I think that that goes to, to you know, tell you as far as a salesman's hook goes that Derek May had the had the more successful uh, hook. Yeah, he had the slick patter for sure. And the line, you know, craft work and George Clinton trapped in an elevator with only a sequencer to keep him company is is really brilliant and telling. Um, so that's, you know, this is why Derek May is is Derek May and why we're still talking about him uh, 30 low these 30 years later. And so now the, the rest of the chapter takes it back for the second summer of love. UK, um, you know, had had the 88 summer of love, then the second one in 89. And then the 
and we've talked about this before, there's also the Summer of Love in 67, so kind of a multiple pun. But this is where they're putting on the really big shows, and there's another, a second energy uh, promotion, and they've got a great story here. And I think Brewster and Broughton might have had this story too. But Yeah, with about, the exact same quote from Frankie Bones, I yeah. believe. <laughs> yeah, so Frankie Bones, who's uh, uh, he's from New York, right? He's an ex-Latin freestyle DJ, and that's kind of a, a, a Hispanic cousin of hip-hop um, not even a cousin. It's 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 a Latin expression of hip hop, um, and he plays energy and has this you know revelatory experience playing to thousands and thousands of white people um, at dawn, at taking E for the first time, and has this religious experience. And um, you know it talks about his track uh, "Just as Long as I've Got You" by DJ Lenny D and Frankie Bones, and the sales. You know he'd been selling three to five thousand in Detroit, or not in Detroit, in New York and Chicago. And then once he breaks the UK market, he jumps up to 10,000. So it's kind of interesting to me. It's like, I would have thought the numbers would have been bigger. You hear, you know, number one hit in the UK and stuff. And this wasn't a number one hit, but it was a chart hit. But it's not even 100,000. I mean, we're talking about five-figure record sales here. But these guys are running their own labels, basically. And there's yeah. a very there's a very short chain uh, of, of operation to, that needs to be covered if you don't have uh, somebody like Trax Records in the middle uh, sucking up all the money. So, I mean, uh, Lenny D was talking about how they were just making uh, DJ tools. They would take whatever the hot the hot track was, uh, if even if it wasn't dance, you know, a dance song. You just steal the baseline from that, put a four four beat over it, and maybe add a little bit of uh, you know a little bit of a drum machine, maybe a little, couple of strings, a couple of stabs here and there. And then you'd release them as part of this Bones Break compilation, which had like, you know, six, six different DJ tools per record. And they were just pumping them out and sending them over to the UK. And, and they were going by volume and they were never they were never shy about ripping off. Like, uh, I think there was there was a funny story about how D kind of uh, had to hide from some of the Belleville guys because uh, they had <laughs> they had ripped ripped them off and eventually it all all kind of worked out and everybody's friendly and stuff like that but you know I mean it's steal and steal alike everybody is ripping off everybody at the time uh, so but uh, you know these guys were were hustlers and they were hustling records and they were printing as much as they could and sending it over to the UK and, and getting gigs off of that going over there picking up everything that they could get from the record stores in the UK and bringing it back to America so once again it's that uh it's that spit swapping back and forth across the atlantic that's going on that's that's creating this engine that's turning electronic dance music yeah absolutely and that's the beautiful thing about this stuff it's about the cultural exchange and the free market of ideas or the free black market of ideas because people are just <laughs> jacking each other's shit right, you know, left and right. And To this uh, day, it's no different. It's just better hidden. Yep, yep. It, it's, it, it's all that. So let's hear our last track. This is Little Louis' French Kiss from 1989. And that was Little Louis' French Kiss. This is Chicago House from 1989. So our last song was Detroit from 91. The chapter's about Detroit. 
in in 89 why did you pick this track to close the show uh well you know it was a derrick may special at the music institute he used to play it a lot and it's one that's special to me because this is one of those ones that uh i had heard a lot during during that my heyday of raving back before i started doing stuff in the scene and had to be semi-sober to to do it and french kiss was one of those tracks that when i heard it uh it just blew me away and it has a couple of uh and and to find out that it's from you know 1989 you hear this track and it and it holds up it could it could have been released in like 1997 or 2002 or something like that and it still still sounds fresh and it still drives and it's still great so so excellent choice and now we come to the end of the music institute like it it by the winter of 89 it's already fading and that's what brings us to our um party date of November 24th, 1989. And remember the book's theme is that each chapter is about a specific date and place. Although the first chapter was kind of, he didn't pick a specific date. He picked like a season, I think. And now we've got a specific date, which is the closing night of the Music Institute. The, the crowds were big early and they talked about how, and painted a pretty vivid picture. You know, he gets multiple people who were there at the time talk about how they drew initially heavily or exclusively black crowds and people would wait in line uh, for the after hours club and, you know, on a dead empty street or, you know, downtown Detroit is, is really dying at this point, but people are there happy to wait in line, get in. It's uh, you know, as they say, there's no wallflowers, there's no chairs, no booze. People are just there to dance quote. No one was there to get laid. Nobody was there to get drunk. Nobody was there to make a presentation of style by showing off their hair or their clothes. People are there to dance and hear the music. And then they systematically sort of market it by flyering the suburbs. And that's where you get people like Richie Houghton from Windsor, which it's not really fair to call Windsor, Ontario, a suburb of Detroit, but it kind of functions the way suburbs, I mean, because of the lake and the international borders and everything, it's a separate city. But uh, yeah, on, and before before 9-11, like jumping across, uh, jumping across the border, like I used to live just like an hour and a half north of uh, Vermont and I, you could you could just go across to go see a movie. And there was no, no fear like there is now that that these guards are going to pull you aside and, and stick a hand up your ass. Uh, back then, it was like if you wanted to go to Detroit for for uh, to go drinking and cross back across drunk in your car, you could because no one cared. Because uh, it was a lawless, lawless society compared to today. <laughs> or or we called it freedom back then, but we've forgotten what that is. And also, I wanted to correct. I think I said 1991 for Strings of Life, but it was 1987 uh, for Strings of Life when that dropped. But the the Music Institute, it has its its moment. There's there's a period where it's drawing crowds and, and they're making money, but it's very hand-to-mouth. But by the winter of 89, it's sputtering. Uh, you know, somebody, one of the Detroit guys says, you know, typical Detroit, people are there at first and then they fade. Um, and so they decide to close it on November 24th. And then they've got a pretty vivid telling of Derek May's night um, playing that last last gig. Uh, and yeah, got- weird story about him, like uh, ditching out on it on the final set of the Music Institute to go chase his girlfriend down the street to see whether or not she's like macking some other DJ. It's one of yep. those one of those stories that you're just like, the reason he's telling us this is because he has regrets <laughs> and he, he regrets that that's the way that it ended for him at the Music Institute. It was what I mean, I can understand why that ended up in the book, because it's just so weird. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it, you've got to include it in there. Yeah, it's a very vivid, vivid story. And, you know, the classic, I think a lot of us have been there where there's a strange car parked in front of your girlfriend's house. Your girlfriend's car is parked in front of a strange house. Um, but he felt like he he wasn't on his game. Other people feel like it was this legendary night. But for the artist himself, you know, and he even said, I, I, I ended with the wrong song, which is kind of interesting because he the, the he the song he ended with was Pacific State by 808 State from the north of England. Which is kind of fitting because the it's sad. British, it's a bit sad. Like uh, I mean, uh, I, the thing that I remember when I first heard that song, having having such a reputation for being this important song, is just the fact that it's more armchair listening to me than 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 something that's that that'll really get you to go off on the dance floor. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a, the next era uh, of music, and I think it's fitting that Matas brings that up because these British guys kind of. I wouldn't say steal the thunder from the house and techno producers, but for a variety of reasons, well, I mean, they kind of do the, the, the hardcore drive and everything is, you know, the torch kind of gets passed to England, but I want to, I want to wrap with this quote from Matos um, that he ends the chapter with. And it says house music and techno splintered in rapid order into a hundred subcategories and the party template inherited and promulgated by four young men in Detroit would take ever stranger turns over the next few decades from the margins to the dead center of pop culture. It all lasted less than 16 months, says Derek May of his crucial blueprint. Isn't that amazing? And it is amazing. It's also four young men. And so he, he talks about the Belleville three throughout the chapter, but I assume he's talking about Eddie folks is the fourth one. Is that your guess? Yeah, that that's my guess. Eddie, Eddie seems to be the, the one that's, uh, any, any time that they talk about four versus three, Eddie's usually the fourth and it still bugs me that it's not the Belleville four, but I guess at a certain point after all those articles in the UK of being written in magazines, uh, with, with the catchy originator, innovator, elevator, and then, you know, trying to, trying to fit Eddie back in there, especially after maybe he's pissed the, the, the gang off a couple of times with his hijinks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, history is written by the winner and sorry, Eddie, but winners, but you know, um, Derek May and company definitely, um, pushed past and, you know, we, we talked about it before. There's some, some bad blood there, but they all, they all contributed. So I'm glad Matos, uh, did at least, and he does mention folks by name. I think he was the one making the, the typewriter joke, uh, in the quote. So, yeah, folks makes it in there a couple of times in the mentions and stuff like that. So yeah, he, he's in the index, so he's he's in history. He's just um, not one of the triumphant heroes. So that's it for our, our chapter on the Music Institute. Next time we'll be back and we'll talk about a chapter Matos calls "Stranger Than Fiction," or I guess this was a club, Los Angeles, California, September seventh, nineteen ninety. So we're going to be going back to Cali. So for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox. And this has been Techno Roll. We've been discussing The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America by Michelangelo Matos. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will follow the story of electronic dance music in the late 80s and early 90s from New York to Los Angeles as Hip House emerges and Rave makes its way to the States. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.